Deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do. That's true for companies, it's true for products, and it's true for VCs too. Emergence Capital is known for a few superstar deals, like Crunchbase and Zoom, but also for their sourcing and selecting deals. They look at B2B software as a service companies and nothing else. In the early 2000s, when the firm started, it wasn't an obvious space to place a bet. But it turns out that massive value is unlocked when you hone in and focus. Today, we talk to general partner Santiago Subetovsky, who just became one of the first investors from Latin America to make the prestigious Midas list. In this chat, you'll hear about the advantages of staying focused, how they assess patterns of successful entrepreneurs, what he's learned from the founder of Zoom, their biggest investment to date, and are the best deals really ones where there's controversy? My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Thank you for making the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Let's start off by what makes Emergence a startup? What makes us a startup is that we're always emerging in our name. It's the essence of what we're trying to do. We don't take anything for granted. We picked a space that wasn't obvious, so B2B and SaaS, when we started doing it in the early 2000s, people thought that we were stupid. It's like they, they, they didn't believe that anyone was going to move sensitive data to the cloud. They were always going to keep everything locked up, basement, servers, on-prem, nothing's going to move to the cloud. But like any startup, you have a conviction, you believe in something that is not common knowledge, that people look at you thinking that you are never going to get anything right, and then that conviction pays off. So since those early days where we bet the firm on this category, enterprise SaaS, we keep on reinventing and figuring out what's next. We run a process internally where we have, at any point in time, three major themes that the entire firm is going after within enterprise. And everyone on the investment team, associates to general partners, is required to present a new emerging theme every year. So that's how we push ourselves to keep on exercising the muscle of what's next. Most of those themes end up dying over time, but some of them end up emerging into one of these primary themes. And we constrain the number of primary themes to three, like any startup, that if you don't operate with constraints, you're not going to get the best out of it. And that's why we keep on pushing ourselves and we don't take anything for granted. I love the focus, like it's the classic kind of challenge as an entrepreneur. You want to chase the bright and shiny lights because there's so many opportunities in the world, right? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. Uh, we're talking about this focus. And a lot of venture capital firms, they don't focus because they start with something that could be consumer, that could be enterprise, early stage, US, global. And then as they start getting some of those successes, they feel that, oh, now I can do everything, and then diversify, and they start playing the assets and the management game. It's like, how much money can I raise? I can do early, late, Brazil, Argentina, US, China, India, and that's when the returns come down, and you end up delivering average returns, and average returns in venture, it's not good. You need to be top tier, like when you're running a startup. So that's why I sometimes find it fascinating that VCs tell startups, 
focus, just do one thing, do it incredibly well, be world-class at it, and then VCs diversify. It's like, oh, we can do everything. We can raise a growth fund and raise a seed fund and do early. Um, so that's why I believe that in order to create those durable, sustained returns over time, you need to be focused. I love that. And it is kind of ironic, right? Because it is the lore of like investors are like, oh, we got to focus. We got to. And I remember as an entrepreneur, that was when I actually unlock value was when I started focusing. And so it's ironic that it's easy to give the advice, hard to practice, right? Yes. It's hard to practice, especially when when you're when you're operating without constraints, which is some something that also happens to entrepreneurs. When you start raising a lot of money without having to do any diligence and present and the market is flooded with capital, that could be a false positive. That can make you feel that, oh, I have everything under control. Same thing when you're a VC. If LPs, you're our investors, give us money regardless of what we do, then that's a false positive. And the difference is that with a startup, generally you get much shorter feedback loops. If you do something wrong, you're going to find out in the next quarter or two quarters. If you hire the wrong person, you're going to know pretty soon if your head of sales is not delivering. But in venture, you raise a fund, those funds have a 10-year tail. So it's probably going to take one, two, or three funds to figure out that what you're doing is not working out. And that could be 15 years. Yeah. (laughs) You don't want to wake up in nine years from now and be like, you know what? Maybe the strategy wasn't the right one because... That could be quite frustrating. But to your point about asset center management, I love the focus. I love specializing. I think it's just super critical. And you're playing the AUM game. Like, yeah, you you make some money, but you're not going to build something durable that is disruptive and that's changing an industry. And that's, I love that's always been your guys' kind of DNA. Let's double click on the B2B sauce because, you know, and I say sauce because I've been living in Latin America too long. Uh, We change places, right? Like, what year did you come up to the Bay Area? And just to give some context to our audience here. I moved to California in 2010. Okay. Because I remember visiting you at, the, it was the Redwood City office or where, yeah, where was it? San Mateo. Yes. Yeah. San Mateo. And so it's 2010. So this year, over a decade, that was right around the time when I was like really getting entrenched in LATAM and lived there for a while, but moving to Brazil. So you've been doing this for over a decade now in the Bay Area. And the pattern recognition focusing on you know having the, the advantage of being focused, the B2B software as a service, what are some of the patterns of success that you recognize among the top companies in that category? So for me, some of the most interesting patterns uh, are how the entrepreneurs think and why they do what they do. What I found out is that a lot of entrepreneurs start a company just because their friends are starting companies and they think it's cool to be an entrepreneur. And as you know, being an entrepreneur, it's a lot of work. And you don't own your time. You don't own your weekends. You don't own your holidays. Uh, The company owns everything. So you need to be willing to live with that. So if you're just doing it for the glory of being an entrepreneur, when things start getting tough, you're probably going to give up and you're probably going to either sell the company, shut down, find like a stable paying job at Facebook, Google, Salesforce, or one of the lar- or one of the lar- other large companies. If you're doing what you're doing because you can't you can't conceive a world without that specific product or service, then 
it becomes more of a of a mission uh, rather than a company. And then it's like you have this irrational obsession that the world needs to be different because you're creating this app, this platform, this service. So then, I mean, you're going to run through walls. And when people tell you you're crazy, you shouldn't do that, and when you're close to running out of cash, you're still going to keep going because you believe that this needs to happen. So that's one of the patterns that I've identified as one of those keys to success for entrepreneurs is love what you're doing because no matter what, it's going to get tough at some point. And if you don't love it, then it's not worth it. And then if you look at the probabilities, chances are that your company might not make it and might not become the next Salesforce or Google or Facebook. So if you spend 10 years doing what you're doing and it's an okay outcome, but not a a massive outcome, are you still going to be happy? Are you going to be happy if you enjoy the ride and you're obsessed with that solution and you see that that solution is creating a change in the world? Yeah. So it's making sure that you're on the journey for the right reason. And if you're just starting it to either just because you want to make make money or you want to, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the, the journey. But if your motivations are because your friends are doing it or because like it looks more fun, that you're just going to hit a wall and you're, you're not going to be able to figure out whether you're going to get a ladder from somewhere or like knock it down with a, a backhoe or whatever your mechanism is to get to the other side. I think that's super good advice because you see a lot of, particularly when there's the markets are flush with cash, it just becomes this kind of like, me too game, right? Where it's like, yeah. hey, I got I'm gonna jump in as well. Yeah. Um, and how do you assess for that? I mean, it's hard because there's a feeling in venture, which is like there's the analytical piece, the cohort analysis, the all the things that are kind of common knowledge, but then there's also this like the kind of bright-eyed look that you see. What are the things that you've seen if you think back to like maybe investments you've made where it was like maybe it didn't always make sense the investment at the time, hundred percent but there was the, the feeling component. Can you try to articulate that? Just because to me, that kind of fascinates me. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be easy to articulate that, but my mind goes to journey rather than snapshot. A lot of entrepreneurs and early on in my career, I thought that the fundraising process was a time to meet and engage with that entrepreneur to make a decision. And some entrepreneurs still do that, they go out and meet VCs or investors for the first time when they're fundraising, and then they make a decision based on the term sheet, like valuation, option pool, preference, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel that that's the wrong way to look at an investment because an investment is more than that. It's a partnership. So we did an analysis and we looked at our investments. On average, we've, we've built relationships for more than a year with the entrepreneurs that we end up partnering with. So then you get to see this essence of why are they doing what they're doing? What happened when things got tough? How did they adjust? Who did they bring in? Who did they replace along the way? So you not only see the snapshot, the metrics and the great LTV and CAC and growth and all these like awesome metrics that, he, that Excel can show, you see the journey that an entrepreneur is going through. And the same thing, uh, needs to apply, in my opinion, to entrepreneurs partnering with VCs because you're not partnering with the capital. You're not partnering with the firm. You're partnering with a person. So 
How did that person react when you called them and you told them that you were having a not so great quarter or that someone just quit uh, the firm? Uh, were they freaked out or were they helpful? Did they understand? How did they react when they when you told them that you were having some personal issues? Did they care? Did they want to help? Or, they, or did they say, yeah, I don't care about that. Let's talk about revenue. You're going to spend a lot of time and you're going to be with those partners when things are great and when things are not so great. So understanding that journey is probably the essence of what's going to make you happy down the road, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor. So that's why when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, especially coming from Latin America, I tell them your first trip to Silicon Valley shouldn't be when you're raising capital. Come out here, tell people what you're doing, tell them about your story, your motivation. Don't ask for money. Ask for advice, build relationships, and then come again, give them an update. And then the third time you come out here, then talk about your race. But a lot of people come out here, they show up on a Monday. It's like, oh, I want to pitch you. And if you can give me the terms about Friday, that'll be great. It's really tough to do that. That's a kind of a shotgun wedding, and they typically don't work. No, I like that. I mean, it's we forget that there's a human element and like a relationship piece. And the numbers are important. They've got to line up. You guys don't make investments in companies you don't think can be really big and show promise, but you also probably want to invest in certain types of entrepreneurs that you feel like you'll connect with and you'll be able to help. And an entrepreneur should be interviewing you also, right? Like that's best entrepreneurs I know. They're constantly evaluating the investor equally to the investor evaluating them. Yeah. And if you think about it, you can, I mean, you can change revenues. I mean, revenues, you can affect them. They can go up, they can go down. You can affect churn, LTV, CAC. It's hard to change people. People are who they are. They evolve, they grow, but the essence remains the same. You mentioned Latin America. You know, you're from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. You're, you're an entrepreneur also, right? You built a business. I think that's an important detail because you you have the empathy of... <laughs> what it's like to be in the trenches, which I really value as an entrepreneur when I'm talking to an investor. And now that I do a little bit of investing, not obviously on the scale that you do, but it's helpful to kind of connect. When you look at where we are you know, in the region, and we talked, I don't know, we caught up maybe a couple months ago. And if I think back to 10 years ago, where Latin America was then and where it is now, I know that you guys haven't been heavy in the region because you have so much going on in the US. But what is the Valley's take right now on when you look at the global landscape, because you guys are probably have people pitching you from all over the world, how is the feeling about Latin America over the last kind of couple of years? And where do you think there's always been a discussion about Brazil as being the country of the future and it always will be? That's like the classic kind of phrase. And you could kind of dovetail Latin America into if you wanted to group it a little bit. Obviously, it's a, not a monolith, but how would you describe the current kind of backdrop and feeling from the Silicon Valley, because you have your finger on the pulse about the region? So my sense is that early on, when when I was running my company, uh, we were seeing a lot of the Me Too companies. It's like, oh, this company is working incredibly well in the US. Let's replicate the same model with some adjustment for Latin America. It's like Groupon in the US, Groupon for Latin America, this for the US that for Latin America. That was interesting, but I don't think that realized the full potential of the region. Then we started seeing some some of those more regional plays that took advantage of the local friction. 
uh, and I mean, what you were doing, that was more valuable in Latin America as a region than here in the U.S. Because here in the U.S., there are a lot of public databases with a lot of information. So you can build a layer on top of that. You were building not only the layer, the consumer layer, but you were building the infrastructure because the gaps were huge. If you think about uh, opportunities in the financial services market, in the U.S., things are a lot more efficient. So you can innovate around the edges. But when it comes to massive transformations, in Latin America, there's so many gaps that the solutions that are going to work in Latin America are going to be much more valuable than the ones that work in the U.S. And those are the opportunities that I found super interesting in the last decade, probably, which were the ones that were leveraging the local frictions of problems that were bigger in our regions than in the U.S. And what I'm anticipating is going to happen in the next 10 years is that with the pandemic, we've kind of globalized the opportunities and validated this remote work environment. So now, and I share this with you when we're chatting the last time around, uh, the challenge that I have with my kids going to school here in Silicon Valley are the same challenges that my sister has with her kids in Buenos Aires. It's not the same, it's like virtual work and how do we do this? So now a lot of those challenges are global. They're not specific to Argentina or the US. And that's what's going to create a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs outside of the U.S. to tackle global problems from the get-go. And that's something that I'm pretty excited about. Santi, that really resonates with me today because Thursdays are my Zoom kids school. And so I, I, I mean, I got crushed today. <laughs> like, it was hard. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, it was very, a very uh, poignant statement as I'm kind of fresh off a tough morning with my kids on, you know, managing it. The schools are adapting, but Man, it's hard. Hard for parents. So I really like that. I think that there are some local friction problems, you know, that are enormous in the region in Latin America that can be solved locally. Let's talk a little bit more about you guys have a really impressive portfolio. I want to double click on one. I remember maybe a year or two ago I came to your office and we chatted and you you bought Crunchbase and you spun it out. Like Crunchbase is so, is something that like probably every founder listening to this like uses to some degree, right? whether it's finding an investor, angel investors, updating their information, and the rationale of spinning it out, you know, what you were trying to achieve with that. Because I think it was a, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. And I think that's where the advantage of growing up in Latin America and having a lot of people tell you it can't be done, it's impossible. You don't take that as the definitive answer and you just keep trying. That's what enabled us to get this done. Because at some point... There was a rumor in the market that they were trying to spin out Crunchbase as an independent company, but nobody could get it done because AOL owned it and AOL was in this tough spot where if I spin it out and it crashes, collapses and disappears, they're going to look at us and say, say you just killed a great company. Uh, what a shame. You shouldn't have done it. And if we spin it out and it becomes a great success, same thing. It's like, oh, you should have kept it. Look at the amount of value that you're now transferring to someone else. So there, there, was no, there was no incentive for them. It's kind of that, damn if you do, damn if you don't. The momentum was kind of, oh, we won't do anything. So as I started understanding what the problem was, we came up with this idea where we allow them to participate in the success. 
So I remember flying out to New York and meeting with the with the AOL team there. That's kind of, oh, I'm here in New York. Uh, I want to stop by and tell you a little bit about this idea that we have. And of course, it was all planned. And I specifically traveled to New York for that. So we had this meeting and we told them, look, what we can do is we can, we can help you do this. You're going to keep one third of the company. New investors are going to get one third of the company. We're going to bring in new management and they're going to get one third of the company. So then if it works incredibly well, this could be more valuable than AOL. And, and that's what unlocked this situation. That's kind of thinking outside the box and thinking about the different interests that people have. But from a Silicon Valley VC, that was too much work. I'd rather stay in my office, uh, Sand Hill Road, entrepreneurs will come to me. Like It was a pain to deal with like AOL and existing employees, setting up new accounts and transferring all the IP. But we were able to not only capture, but create a lot more value. And now the company is doing incredibly well as an independent company. They've launched products that they're monetizing and they're on a great trajectory. And this wouldn't have happened without that stubbornness that characterizes us as Latin American entrepreneurs because everything is so hard for us that we're used to it. It's like we don't turn around and just go and take the easy road out because there's no easy road out from wherever we are. We always need to climb and fight and eventually we'll get there. There's a, a resilience factor, right? And a perseverance factor that like only if you've kind of experienced it of all the friction points and the, the ability to kind of overcome, right? Yeah, and I think it's a combination of that plus no ego. Uh, I'm not going to, I mean, people tell us, no, it can't be done most of the time, and we just keep going. Here, if you work hard and something doesn't happen, it's like, oh, what are people going to say? What are my partners going to say that I wasted all this time and I didn't get the deal done? That is part of what we do. That is part of being an entrepreneur. You're going to try a lot of things. You're going to fail a lot. Hopefully, you won't fail twice with the same thing. You're going to learn and you're going to keep on iterating. That's the same approach that in venture works out really well. Because as a venture capitalist, I don't consider myself an asset manager or an asset allocator. I think I'm a, I'm a salesman. I'm out there on the road now, mostly on Zoom. Uh, convincing entrepreneurs to take our money, convincing our investors, our LPs to invest in us, convincing talent to join our companies. That's that's what we do all day long. If you think of yourself as an investor, I'm a glorified asset manager and I'm going to have my, uh, I don't know, like fancy office with wooden walls and leather couches. And then entrepreneurs are going to parade through the office and I'm going to say, thumbs up and thumbs down, that's not what works in this world. Do you think that there's an element of like the immigrant hustle though, like there? Because I mean, when you move to another place, like you, you've got something to prove. What you're describing is basically, it's the hustle you need to make anything work that's hard, right? And there's just probably a greater motivation for when you come from another place. It's like, I gotta, I gotta make things happen here, right? Oh, definitely. When I moved here in 2010, and I tried to get into venture. I was—I had my own CRM. I was tracking different venture firms. 
And I had over 70 names in my pipeline of firms that I was talking to. And the majority said, no, you, we don't have a job for you. Some of them went even further and said, there are no Latinos in venture. Venture is not something for Latinos. You should go and do something else. And I actually took that as a, now I want to get into venture just to prove you wrong. I might quit the next day, but before I quit, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. So yeah, you're totally right. The chip on the shoulder, it's not a bad thing when you turn it and put it into some positive energy. And that is a challenge. You either get demotivated when people tell you, no, it can't be done, or you turn that into more energy to just prove people wrong. I love it. I can relate to that a lot. Something that I think is a quality of, of great entrepreneurs. And one thing you mentioned I really liked is you referred to yourself as like, I don't know how you said it, but like a glorified salesperson. What I like about it is you also said something right before that, which was aligning interests. And that's really the best people that are good commercially. They really understand the needs of the other person. And then they, it's not about trying to convince them of something. It's really just trying to align interests. And how do you feel like you've been able to understand the needs of the founders and then you know work hard to kind of build value? What are the key things that you've learned over the last decade that have made you successful in that respect? Yeah, I mean, this question, this question triggered a lot of thoughts for me. I think I've never thought about this, but actually that idea of aligning interests, it, it's incredibly uh, productive in venture because when you're looking at a company and you're trying to invest in a company, there are a lot of stakeholders that have a decision-making power. And it's not just the CEO. It's all the co-founders, the existing investors. Sometimes there is like a spouse or a significant other. So you need to understand all the moving parts. And what I always say when I'm talking to entrepreneurs and we're talking about a potential investment is that my goal is not to come up with the best deal. Uh, my goal is to come up with the right deal. Because if I'm trying to optimize on what's the best thing for emergence, it's like, yeah, writing the smallest check for the most amount of ownership possible. But that might not be the right deal because then uh, the founders are not going to have enough, enough skin in the game. Uh, early investors are not going to be able to do their prorata. Everyone's going to be pissed. Board dynamics are going to suck and it, we're all going to be miserable and the founders might end up leaving. But if you do the right deal, making sure that you come up, you listen, and you, you basically respond to everyone's need, that's how you establish these long-term relationships that transcend the, the board interaction. It's like, I'm not just an investor. And the biggest compliment that I get from the entrepreneurs that I work with is when they describe the relationship they have with me as Santi's part of my family. I mean, he knows my spouse, he knows my kids, he knows my dogs, he knows everyone, he knows everything that I'm going through, and he's been there when things were good and when things were not. For me, that's the big compliment, and that works incredibly well for me. And it, does, it shouldn't work for everyone else because people have different motivations, and some people just want to go transaction after transaction, and it's a high volume. But as both an investor and as an entrepreneur, you need to figure out what your values are and make sure that the people you're partnered with share those same values. I like that a lot, that perspective. And I guess one of the challenging things for a venture fund and for a venture partner is 
when things aren't going well, right? Because not every company is a Zoom, right? You don't. If you hit a Zoom every time, then that would be it'd be a bit wild. It does take one, and but you've got a lot of other great companies in the portfolio. But I'm sure that you've had ones that like you know just didn't pan out as much. And how do you reconcile the fact that not every company is going to work, and you have only a certain time allocation that you can give? I've been the I felt as an entrepreneur the kind of the darling in the room, and then things aren't as great at some point, and the best investors are obviously supportive at all times, but how do you reconcile like how you spend your time and how you really dig in with those entrepreneurs that are struggling? What's your approach there? So there's two sides to that question that I can think of. One is how do I uh, interact with entrepreneurs when their companies are not doing that well and I know that I'm not going to make a great return? I feel that when I invest and partner with an entrepreneur, I'm committing to them, good times and bad times. And even if for me as a fund, the company might not generate a fund returner, for the entrepreneur, it's it's a life-changing opportunity, however they can land the plane. Uh, So I take that very seriously. And over time, there's a saying that people use that I believe in it, which is you make your money on your winners and your reputation on the companies that don't do that well. I've had so many referrals from entrepreneurs who didn't do that well and I work with them uh, that it, that's incredibly rewarding. And when people ask me for references, I typically tell them, just call anyone, even the companies that didn't do that well, because it's easy to have a great relationship with Eric of Zoom when the company is doing incredibly well. But what about other companies? How how did we treat them when things were not going that well? Did we just stop showing up to board meetings? So that is incredibly important. And that's why we limit the number of new investments we make to make sure that we have enough capacity for the winners and the companies that need a lot more help. And the second part of that question is, as a group, how do I deal with... I? brought in this company, I pounded the table, I told my partners that we had to write a check. And then one of them said, oh, the market is not great or the entrepreneur is not motivated enough. And then that happens. How do I avoid the finger pointing? And the way we do that at Emergence is we have this concept of unanimous enthusiasm. To invest in a company, we don't have a voting system. It's not majority. It's not that people have veto powers. Everyone associated to general partner gets involved in diligence. So we all call customers. We all meet with the entrepreneurs. We all do management references. So at the time we make a decision, we're all contributing with primary information. So when we decide to invest in a company, we decide to invest in a company as a group. And if we decide to pass, same thing. And that gets rid of the finger pointing because if the company that we invested in does great, then it was a group decision. If it didn't do that well, same thing, group decision. And if we missed out on a company that we passed on because we missed something, then there's no, oh, partner, you told us not to do it. It's like we make it, we made a decision as a group. And that generates this long-term ethos within the firm where it's like we're all in this together. That's interesting. And when I think about the qualities of like very seasoned investors. There's a quality of 
they remain calm when there's a storm because they've seen lots of storms before. And it's also a quality of success because if you're a new fund manager and you're like banking on a company to make it because you haven't raised your other funds or you haven't really broke through as a top tier fund, you're also, you're hanging your hat on the, the success of those companies. And so I don't know if it's like a quality that comes, that results in the success of being a top tier fund or if it's becoming a top tier fund and then it enables you to like be able to be supportive during the difficult times because it's an interesting i think it sounds like it's the dna of the fund that you operate uh, i do think it's the dna of the fund uh we've been using this unanimous enthusiasm even when things were not doing that well and when we invested in zoom it wasn't obvious uh the common knowledge in silicon valley was that there was no need for another video conferencing company because they were talking from their Palo Alto office to someone else in San Francisco, and connectivity was great. They were not talking to people outside of the bubble. And we did the diligence, we got conviction, we wrote the biggest check in the history of emergence, and I was a junior investment professional back then. Uh, but I knew that I had the teams, I mean, that my entire team had my back and they would support me, even if that created a big hole in my career, losing a ton of money. We had, we had that conviction as a group. And we can only do that because we're a focused firm. There's this general sense that uh, the greatest investments are the ones where there's a lot of con- con- controversial conversations within a firm. But that is if you have someone doing consumer, someone doing enterprise, and someone doing biotech. If you're doing consumer, you're not going to be able to convince an enterprise investor that like, I don't know, clicks or or eyeballs are going to generate money. But if you're all focused on the same category, then you can get there as a group and you can help each other out because we all have the same experience on the same DNA. Man, I, I it's cool that you say that. I've never thought about that because there is this kind of common wisdom, like generally accepted wisdom that like the controversy is what happens right. and the, all the great deals happen when there's like someone really doesn't want to do it and then someone does and then it, it, they convince them and then it's like this big almost scandal to get to the decision. Yeah. But I, I didn't think about the fact that if you're verticalized as a fund, it's much easier to come to consensus because you have very strong clarity on what works, you know? Yeah. And for us, the most successful companies were the ones where we ended up paying up and going beyond our comfort zone because we all had that conviction. That's a great lesson. I've felt the same thing as an angel, right? Like, I can't believe this is the price for this company. They have no hardly any revenue. And like, you know, yeah. and you're just like, you can't justify it. And then, and you know, it's going to be interesting, but you, I passed on Rappi, I passed on a few other ones. And I was just like, this valuation's crazy, loft. And then those are the ones that they happen to be the, the best ones. And so th- that is an interesting kind of paradigm there. Yeah. And, uh, but the flip side of that is that at least you saw those companies and you learn from those decisions. The challenge is when, oh, these companies are doing so well, I didn't even see them. I didn't even have the chance. Yeah. So for me, uh, working at a smaller fund, we know that there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to do great. And I'd be super happy for them. And we're not going to be investors. And that's okay. Given the size of our fund, we don't need to be in every great company. We just need to make sure that the companies we're in are great. We're not playing the numbers game. 
we're playing the focus game, the concentrated portfolio game. It's amazing you guys have been able to keep that focus for the firm's been around for a while and you guys maintain that focus. You'd mentioned Zoom. Of course, I got to ask because it's you know one of the greatest investments out there and, and one of the greatest companies. What are some of the things that you've learned? And I know you've, ta- you've been on podcasts before, and this is kind of a common question about Eric and kind of like what you saw in him and, and how that deal happened. But to try to dig into something that like maybe you haven't shared, I know that's a hard question, but like, what are the things that you've learned from him that you observe about him that will help you in pattern recognition for other founders? Uh, when you look at kind of the, you invested a little bit later than you normally do in, in Zoom, right? Yeah, it was a, and it was a big check, yes. Yeah, what was the check? So it was a $20 million check. It's a big check. It's a big check for, yeah. For a Series A fund, uh, yeah, it's a big check. <laughs> Just to put it in perspective, like probably, what, two or three times larger than your, like what was uh, your largest check before that? So it was twice as big as our average check, and we got half the ownership that we typically get. Yeah, which man, you're you're putting yourself out there, right? Like you're getting you're exposing yeah. yourself there in that in that kind of decision. Yeah, and if you look at how the math worked out, it, it didn't matter. We just had to be an investor in that company. If yeah. you have that high level of conviction, then you just need to be an investor in that company. Uh, and you need to find the right deal. Yeah. And to your question about what I learned with Eric that I didn't know before, a lot of things, but one of the ones that comes to mind now is that there's no one size fits all when it comes to building a company. There's this general sense that if you're starting an enterprise company, you build it and then you hire successful executives from other companies, someone who did great at, in our case, enterprise, like Salesforce, and then someone who did great at Fox. Or, or even Dropbox or Google Enterprise, and then those people are going to create a ton of value. Eric never did that. He was his his thinking was these people were successful, so now they're not going to be hungry enough. They're going to be here just like yeah, okay, I'm the celebrity, and everyone's going to be doing work for me. So he typically looked for like super high potential individuals who were working incredibly hard and had that chip on their shoulders, kind of what we were talking about before. Because then they're not doing this because they're celebrities. They just want to prove that they can excel. So if you look at the team, even when the company went public, they were not the traditional team that you would expect uh, at a company that's going public with those metrics. But everyone worked incredibly hard around the clock no ego, just to get things done. And for me, that was a great lesson because I believed that you had to go through this. Let's get the experienced people because those are the ones that are going to get us to the next stage. Yeah, and, and Eric's also an immigrant, right? Which is it, yes. you can relate to, right? <laughs> like there, there must have been some kind of affinity there. So Eric and I connected a lot on, on the immigrant journey. Both of us were told that whatever we wanted to do couldn't be done. Eric, when he started Zoom, uh, people told him it can't be done. You have all these massive companies out there. There's no need for a better solution. What's out there is good enough. Don't waste your time. I've been told that I can't get into venture because I have the Latino gene. And it's like, yeah, we're going to prove people wrong. So yeah, a lot of that immigrant 
mindset and journey came to play in us building that amazing friendship. That makes a lot of sense. And it's ridiculous that someone would think that somebody, you know, can't get into venture, which just shows you that surprising to hear, but it's just a reality of, of some people. Obviously, proving everyone wrong in that. And it's clear that, and when we look at, when you kind of wrapping things up here, I wanted to ask one other question. You know, I think you said something to the effect of like, I wish I knew Silicon Valley existed 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, tell me more about the thought process behind that. So I, I think I ended up here in Silicon Valley by chance because I didn't know Silicon Valley existed growing up in Argentina. Uh, the, the only thing I knew about the U.S., and I was probably an ignorant back then, and I'm still some kind of an ignorant now, but it's like Miami, and then there's Orlando and Disney World, and then there's nothing if you get to New York, and then mountains all the way through the Pacific. Uh, that was my, my idea of the U.S. growing up. And I did. So I started a company in the early 2000s, and I moved here in 2009. So it was like almost uh, 2010. That's when I moved here. So 10 years before I moved here. Had I known Silicon Valley existed, I would have moved here right out of college because I really love what I do. I love this ecosystem. It's unfortunate that my friends and family are back in Argentina, but for what I'm doing and now having a family here, my wife and my kids, I see this as a very special place. So if if I knew I wanted to, when I knew I wanted to start a company, someone should have told me, if you're going to start a tech company, move to Silicon Valley. Is that still classic kind of question of today, right? And Zoom is obviously a facilitator of this because I could be anywhere right now and you wouldn't know. You see a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge behind me, but I'm, I'm actually doing this from the closet of my house. And that's where I can get away from my kids to, to do this in, in peace and quiet for a little bit. But what does that look like? And you know, everyone loves to pontificate about the future of Silicon Valley and Austin, Miami, all these other things. What is your perspective, having the fact you've been there for a while? So my perspective is that Silicon Valley still has something special. And for me, I didn't know anything about technology and innovation. And I needed a crash course. Uh, so Silicon Valley would have been the best crash course I could have ever gotten. Then to start a company, I think I could start a company in Silicon Valley, in Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, or wherever. But to understand what world-class looks like, what you get here in Silicon Valley is something that it's hard to get anywhere else. Yeah, it's, it's something that for Latitude, we had on our first demo day, we had David Velas on and you know, he talked about how Silicon Valley, if you want to talk to someone about product growth or, you know, whatever topic, you just cross the street, you know, yes. <laughs> like that's, that's the reality. And you have hundreds of people that you can talk to. Well, I do think that Gap is closing quickly. And I think that the whole kind of more decentralized uh, way of, of working and this remote work and access to people globally. I mean, we started Latitude, you know, during the pandemic and I started reaching out to mentors located all over the world because of Zoom and it became the, the normal thing to do. And so that may, in some effect, decentralize the Silicon Valley. I'm also with you. I'm, I'm still a believer that there's uh, something special there that is hard to kind of replace, but I do think it's becoming more distributed. And I think that's ultimately a good thing for global society, right? And 
opportunities all over the world. Yeah, oh, I agree. I agree. Listen, um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, uh, sharing your your kind of experience. And it's a great example of someone that came from the region of the world that I've lived in for a long time and I'm very connected with. 20 years ago, actually, it's almost to this day, I was in Argentina in, in Belgrano. So it's, it's funny how half of my life ago, what's changed and you've obviously built an amazing career in the Valley. And it's great that you share your, this experience with our audience. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Santi Subutovsky, General Partner of Emergence Capital. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.